from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Finn, and I'm here with my colleague, Stephen Winnick. Happy Halloween! Always, always in October. That is Steve's greeting. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of my thing. <laughs> well, we're both folklorists at the American Folklife Center here at the Library of Congress. I'm the head of research and programs, and Steve is the center's writer and editor, as well as the creator of the blog Folklife Today. And in case you didn't catch it, this will be our third Halloween episode. Right. In honor of Halloween, just like our very first episode, we're sharing haunting songs from our archive here at the American Folklife Center. So to put this in context, especially for new listeners, um, Halloween is a special time here at the center, isn't it? That's right. We actually launched the blog Folklife Today at Halloween back in 2013. So this Halloween season marks the seventh anniversary of our blog, which you can find at blogs.loc.gov folklife. And seven is a magic number. Since we started the blog, we've covered a pretty wide range of subjects and collections in over 750 individual blog posts, but we always do something special for Halloween. Right. And that's a tradition we've extended to this podcast. We launched the Folklife Today podcast two years ago for Halloween. So this is our podcast anniversary, too, and our third Halloween episode, as we mentioned. And we are joined this time to talk about haunting songs by Jennifer Cutting, a folklife specialist and ethnomusicologist on our staff. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, everybody. So on this episode, in recognition of the enduring themes of Halloween, we're featuring songs and tunes that involve our relationship with dun, 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 death and the supernatural. Why don't we begin with the late, great Gene Ritchie singing The Unquiet Grave, which is both a tender love song and also a frank conversation with a ghost. The Unquiet Grave is a very widespread popular ballad given the number 78 in Francis James Child's book, The English and Scottish Popular Ballads, and it's also number 51 in the Roud Folk Song Index for all you Roud and Child nerds. It was sung all over Britain and Ireland, but it was less common here in the U.S., making Gene Ritchie's version a very special treat. Gene Ritchie was, of course, a singer and collector from Kentucky who became a major force in the folklore world. Our recording of Gene singing this song was recorded by Herman Norwood in the Library of Congress Recording Lab. Of course, due to the pandemic, we're remotely recording this in our homes, but that lab was located right where we normally record this podcast in the Library of Congress's beautiful Jefferson Building. The recording was supervised by Duncan Emmerich, then head of the library's folklore section, a precursor of the American Folklife Center. Since then, Jean's own collections and others featuring her music have been added to the American Folklife Center's archive. That's right. Now, as for this song, my own dear folklore mentor, Kenneth S. Goldstein, also recorded Jean Ritchie singing this song for one of her Folkways LPs, and he wrote liner notes for that album. And here's what he said about this song. He said, Jean Ritchie's Kentucky version, learned from her uncle Jason, 
is notable for its exhibition of several universal popular beliefs, including a talking ghost, the idea that excessive grief on the part of mourners disturbs the peace of the dead, the troth plight that binds lovers even after death, with the death kiss perhaps indicating a return of the troth, and the belief that the kiss of a dead person may result in death. Gene Ritchie's version, truly exquisite as to both its poetry and music, is a valuable addition to our recorded ballad lore. So with that introduction from one of my own deceased loved ones, let's hear Gene Ritchie sing The Unquiet Grave. The wind doth blow today, my love, with a few small drops of rain. I never had but one true love, and she in the cold grave has lain. I will do as much for my true love as Yeah. 
Once again, that was The Unquiet Grave, sometimes also called The Lover's Ghost, as sung in 1951 by Gene Ritchie. And Jennifer, you also brought along an interesting perspective on the song, didn't you? Yes, I want to mention an interpretation from Shirley Collins, who's part of our Alan Lomax collection, and who said this about this song. She said, this is one of the classic pieces of English folk song literature. From one point of view, it is a feminine fantasy or a wish, perhaps for the death of a lover, perhaps for a way of arranging a night visit by the lover, perhaps for a way of showing how strong her love is, perhaps of a feeling of guilt. Certainly, it is a ghost story designed to delight the imagination of young women. And hearing Shirley Collins' interpretation, I, I can't help noticing that she talks about wishing for the death of a lover and wondering what might have been going on in her life at that time. Of course, she was herself a young woman when she wrote that. Um, Shirley Collins is a couple of years older now, but still active in folk circles in Britain. And speaking of our mentors and Great Britain and the Lomax Collection, Jennifer has a song she brought along, too. Yes, just as Steve was one of Kenny Goldstein's last students, I was one of the last students of the great A.L. Lloyd, which was a great honor. Albert Lancaster Lloyd, who was generally known as Bert, was a really important figure on the British folk scene. He started writing about folk song in the 1940s and became one of Britain's leading experts. He mentored a lot of the folk revival musicians and groups, including folk rock bands like Steel Eye Span and Fairport Convention. And he also mentored ethnomusicology students from the University of London, like myself. He collated and edited a lot of songs that became the folk revival's standard versions. And sometimes, naughty Bert, he even fudged the data on where his various songs came from, which Steve and other scholars have written about. That's right. He even went to some of our Library of Congress collections at the American Folklife Center, like the George Corson collection, and then adapted American songs into supposedly British versions of those songs. But that's a story for another day. One of the songs he sang for Lomax in 1951 is called Polly Vaughn, also known sometimes as Molly Vaughn, or The Shooting of His Deer. It's a widespread folk song about a young man who shoots his true love by accident. He's out hunting and she has on a white dress and he mistakes her for a swan. And later her ghost makes an appearance. Let's hear it. Come all you young fellas that carry a gun. I'll have 
you come home by the light of the sun. For young Jimmy was a fowler and a fowling alone. When he shot his own true love in mistake for his one. As young Polly went out in a shower of rain, she hid under the bushes her beauty to gain. With her apron thrown over her, and he took her for a swan. And he aimed, and he fired, and shot Polly's own. Now the girls of this country they're all glad we know to see Polly Vaughan a lion so low. You could gather them into a mountain and you could plant them in a row. And her beauty would shine among them like a fountain of snow. Well, the trial wore on and young Polly did appear. Crying, uncle, dear uncle, let Jimmy go clear. For my apron was thrown over me and he took me for a swan. And he made my poor heart bleed all on the green ground. Okay, so the ghost comes to testify at the trial and tells everyone this was a hunting accident? Yes, she was a very forgiving ghost. In our very first episode two years ago, we featured Pretty Polly, in which Willie kills Polly on purpose, and her ghost tracks him down and kills him for revenge. This is kind of the opposite. Jimmy shoots Polly by mistake, and her ghost defends him. That's a great point. It's really the opposite of a murder ballad. It's an involuntary manslaughter ballad with a forgiving ghost <laughs> instead of a vengeful ghost. <laughs> right. And Bert sang a pretty short version of it. There are others where Jimmy's uncle advises him not to run, but to wait for the trial because no one would believe that he shot Polly on purpose. So it's clear that it really was an accident. I'm also struck by Bert's modulation or key change when he gets to the verse about the girls of this country. I wish Bert were still around so I could just ask him about that. In fact, I'll mention that Bert sang two different versions of this for Lomax, which have slightly different words, and both are available online. And he did that modulation in both of them. So he wasn't just adjusting his voice after a verse or two, which traditional singers sometimes do as well. It seems to have been intentional um, and part of his interpretation of the song. So just for fun, we've put links to a couple of other versions in the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. So to move on to our next song, this is one John can really connect with. Indeed. Like a lot of our listeners, I have college and high school age kids whose lives have also been turned upside down by this pandemic. And my wife is a university professor, so her teaching has been affected as well. We're very thankful that everyone is safe and healthy, and our next ballad puts that in perspective. It tells the story of a mother who sends her three sons off to school and they die of a plague while they're away. She wishes for a visit from them, and they return as rather stern and religious ghosts. Francis James Child called this ballad The Wife of Usher's Well, and it was often collected in America as The Three Babes 
or The Lady Gay. So for folk nerds, this ballad is number 79 in Child's Collection and number 196 in the Roud Index. Now, in some older versions of this song, the three sons lie down in the bed she has made, but the crowing of the cock warns that they have to leave before dawn. The mother walks her children back to the gates of heaven and is told by Jesus to prepare for her own death by repenting her wickedness and calling her children home from heaven. Nine days later, she herself dies and joins her children in paradise. Right, but our version is simpler, kind of a homespun tale. It was sung by Isaac Garfield Greer, who was known as I.G. Greer or simply Ike. You'll hear dulcimer accompaniment by his wife, Willie Spainauer Greer. It was recorded in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1941 by Fletcher Collins. Greer was a history professor and folk song collector at what is now Appalachian State University, and his own collection of manuscript and typescript folk songs are worth visiting on the university's website. One thing I like about it is that even though the kids are old enough for boarding school, and in many versions it's clear that they're at least teenagers, their mom still sees them as her little babes. It's a realistic view of parenthood in many ways. Let's hear the three babes. Well, her 
three little babes come a running down to the dear mammy's home. She fixed them a bed in the back mist room, all covered with clean white sheets. And o'er the top a golden one Then they might soundly sleep Take it off, take it off, said the oldest one Take it off, we say again Oh, 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 oh to this wicked world so long since pride began She spread a table far them there All covered with cakes and wine And said, come me to my three little babes Come me and drink of mine We do not want your cakes, mammy We do not want your wine For in the morning by the break of day Will the Savior we must die Again the Three Babes, a version of The Wife of Usher's Well, sung by I.G. Greer and accompanied by Willie Greer. One interesting thing I came across in the archive, the Greers filled out a questionnaire for Ray M. Lawless in 1954, and their two questionnaires are now part of the Ray M. Lawless collection. And it's interesting that Mrs. Greer listed Three Babes, or Lady Gay, as one of her five favorite songs, but her husband, who we just heard singing it, did not so he might have been singing it for her benefit. Mrs. Greer also told Ray Lawless that her dulcimer, which we heard on that song, was over 100 years old at that time in the 1950s. Wow, great stuff. Um, it's amazing how different collections in the archive, like this recording in the Fletcher Collins collection and the questionnaire in the Ray M. Lawless collection, can shed light on one another. So now we're going to move on from ghosts and hear about some other scary creatures you might encounter at Halloween. Uh, Jennifer, did you bring another song by any chance? Yes, glad you asked. I brought along one which is about a kind of traditional boogeyman. Ooh. <laughs> this song is called Bo Lenkins, and it was recorded from Lena Bear Turbyfill in North Carolina by Herbert Halpert in 1939. It's a version of the ballad that Child numbered 93 and Steve Roud numbered 6. In versions that I know better, the character was sometimes called Long Lenkin. In Scots, long was the normal word for tall, and lanky, of course, means tall and thin. So he's like Slenderman's great-grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, yes. And many versions of the ballad make him into a creature that lives outdoors. He's said to live in the moss and to live in the hay. So in those versions, he appears to be some kind of monster or goblin. 
but our version contains a more rational explanation in which the character whose name is Bo Lenkins is a stonemason who doesn't get paid for his work. He gets stiffed on his pay, and so he seeks revenge. And in all versions, the character is a vicious murderer. So it's a very grisly ballad. All right, uh, listeners beware, but let's go ahead and hear it. Bo Lincolns was a very fine mason as ever laid stone. He built a fine castle and the pay he got none. Where is the gentleman? Is he at home? He's gone down to Marion for to visit his son. Where is the lady? Is she at home? She's up there sleeping, said the foster to him. How will we get her down such a dark night as this? We'll stick her little baby full of needles and pins. They stuck her little baby full of needles and pins. The foster she rocked and Bo Lincoln's he sung. While blood and tears from the cradle did run. Down come a lady not thinking any harm. Oh, Bo Lincoln's he took her in his arms. Bo Lincoln's, Bo Lincoln's firm life one day. I'll give you many marigolds that my horse can carry away. Bo Lincoln's, Bo Lincoln's for my life one hour. I'll give your daughter Bessie my own blooming flower. You better keep your daughter Bessie for to run through the flood. And scour silver basin for to catch your heart's blood. Daughter Bessie climbed up in my window so high. And saw her father come riding hard by. Oh, father, oh, father, can you blame me? Oh, Bo Lakins has killed your lady. Oh, father, oh, father, can you blame me? Oh, Bo Lakins has killed your baby. They hung old Bo Lakins to the sea gallows tree and tied the foster to the stake of standby. So, if I've heard that right, he summons the young mother down the stairs by sticking pins in the baby and making it cry. Ooh, that's right. And he has an accomplice who is one of the household's nurses or, or nannies. The word Turbifil used is Foster, which is an old name for a wet nurse. So the wet nurse and Bolenkins kill the baby and the mother and then are hanged for the crime. Um, that's a pretty heavy ballad. Uh, it's also amazing to think of all the fantastic and frightening stuff we have in the archive. Yes, and here's a fun fact. When they made the catalog card for that song back in the 1940s, they listed it as restricted, so it wouldn't have been released to everyone who came to the reading room. 
It was basically rated R by the archive back then because of the scary subject matter. Wow. So it had a kind of trigger warning on the catalog card. That's right. Um, what other supernatural creatures do we have in the archive? Well, one whole community of creatures very closely associated with Halloween is the fairies. On the blog, you can find Jack Santino's great Halloween lecture where he discusses the ballad Tam Lin at some length. We don't have any traditional versions that I know of in the archive, but the ballad's climactic scene takes place on Halloween when the fairies ride in a great procession. So I brought along a related Irish-language ballad sung by Seamus Ennis. In English, it's typically known as The Stolen Bride. Now, Seamus Ennis was a folklorist and collector as well as a singer and piper, and he was Alan Lomax's guide on this trip to Ireland. In addition to his singing of the song, we get to hear his explanation of what it means in English. Excellent. Let's listen to it. This is one of the few fairy songs we have in Ireland. I learned it from a woman in West Cork, and the story of the song is that a woman was abducted by the fairies. And one day, in, uh, one of the neighbours, a woman, was washing on the washing slab by the side of a river when she heard this song coming from a mound which was behind her in a field, a fairy mound. Uh, the song gave her instructions to give to the abducted woman's husband, uh, which would enable her to rescue the abducted woman from the clutches of the fairies. And this is the way the song went in Gaelic. Shaheen 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 Shkian Kashadi, who it no love Shaheen Shah, Shaheen Shah, Sun Kapul Tasig Wallasam Arnin, Shaheen Shah, Shaheen Shah, Maradinj Shafendrasan, Shaheen Shah, Shaheen Shah. Gumedsum Baurian Ernamanasa Shaheen 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 Shaheen
An impromptu translation of the words of that song would go something this way. O woman down yonder on the washing slab, stop your washing board and listen to my complaint. A year from today I was abducted from my true love and carried in here to the fairy mound. The words Shaheen, Shaheen, Shaheen Shaw are purely nonsensical, being uh, chorus words. Tell my husband to come here tomorrow with a wax candle in the centre of the palm of his hand, a black-handled knife to be carried in his hand, and he's to strike the first horse that comes through the gap. If he doesn't come by that time, I will be a queen over these ladies. So that was The Stolen Bride, sung by Seamus Ennis. Steve, can you fill out that explanation a bit? Sure. Fairies were known for stealing human babies and also for stealing young women to act as nurses and nannies for those human babies and for their own babies. So in this song, a recently married woman is stolen by the fairies and put to work as a nurse inside a fairy mound. I'll further explain that fairies in Ireland are believed to live under tumuli, those artificial hills left behind by Bronze Age peoples. So she's imprisoned inside this hill where she has to nurse a baby. And from near the doorway of the hill, she can see a ford at a stream where local women wash clothes. It was common to do the laundry at fords and streams. And so she formulates a plan. She'll encode instructions for rescuing her in what appears to be a lullaby. That way, she can sing the lullaby to the baby and be overheard by the women at the ford who can relay the instructions to her husband. Her captors will just hear her singing a lullaby, which is, after all, her job. And one of the things I like about this is that feminist folklore scholarship has done a lot of analysis on exactly this kind of coding. Her subversive communication is hidden within a permissible channel of communication. And you see this in regular lullabies all the time, too. With, with protest and even hostility towards the baby encoded into them. I mean, let's face it, babies can be pretty overwhelmingly demanding. So what sounds like a loving croon is actually about a baby being left in a tree only to come crashing down when a limb breaks. Huh. Yeah, that's a great point, too. And there are a lot of uh, themes like that in lullabies. And another really cool thing about this song is that Seamus Ennis said he learned it from a lady in West Cork, and he surely meant Elizabeth Cronin. Well, he also took Lomax to meet Mrs. Cronin, and Lomax recorded her own singing of the song and her commentary on it as well. And one last thing that I love about it is that we have in the archive a Lebanese song in Arabic with the same plot about a captured woman being used as a nurse who encodes instructions for rescuing her into a lullaby to be overheard by a family member. But that song isn't supernatural. Her captors are Turks. And I put links to all those versions in the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. So, John, I think you have one more song, too. I do. In our very first episode, I introduced a version of the song Death is Awful or Oh Death. This is about a sinner waking up to find death standing next to her bed, and then there's some negotiations between this dying woman and death. This time, I brought a similar song, except the character who shows up is the devil rather than death. The devil's a very important character in folk songs, and we could do a whole episode just on devil songs, actually. 
Well, we certainly could, and that's a, a good idea to park, right? Um, but in this case, the devil really acts more like death. It's not bargaining for the soul so much as telling you that you can't escape. The song was collected by Alan Lomax at Parchment Farm in 1959 and sung by a group of prisoners, including James Carter, Ed Lewis, Henry Mason, and Johnny Lee Moore. And I should say that since this is a work song, they keep on singing once the verses about the devil are over, and they sing about other things, including work, money, and women. But it starts out with the devil, and it comes back to the devil in the end, so Lomax called it Tom Devil. And there are also two other versions of Tom Devil recorded on that same trip, so we'll put links to them in the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. Fantastic. So we're going to let Tom Devil play us out, but first we should do our thank yous. Um, Jennifer, uh, thanks for coming and being our guest. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And second, let us thank all the singers and collectors we've mentioned throughout the episode. And of course, we have to thank all the colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who help us put this together and get it out to the public. Um, we especially want to thank our engineer, John Gold. And finally, thanks to you listeners out there. And thank you, of course, John. Uh, thanks to you again, Steve, for helping bring us another Halloween with Folklife today. So let's hear Tom Devil. Though some folks says that yeah. the devil's dead, though some folks says that oh, yeah. the devil's dead, yeah. I spun Tom Devil at the head of my bed. Looks like 
been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.